have missed you guys. We've been gone a lot. Don and I were on vacation, and then we were home for a few days. And then last week, I was in Colorado Springs with all of the Vineyard Missions leadership team for what is uh, every year just a amazing and fantastic time meeting with uh, people who are engaged with Vineyard Church planning worldwide. And so it's exciting to hear stories of what God's doing. I was encouraged. Um, we have uh, our very first Vineyard Church plant in Cuba uh, this year, which is really cool. Yeah, I, I was so excited to hear that. Uh, Ray Maldonado, a good friend of mine who is uh, pastors of Vineyard Church in the Chicago area. He is working with pastors and doing training in, in Cuba. And so there, there's a lot of other things going on, um, but it was a very, very encouraging week. Those of you that, if you, you know, don't know, we have uh, Vineyard, we have over 2,500 Vineyard churches in over 60 countries now, and new churches are being planted every day. And we have partnerships of U.S. churches that work in those countries helping uh, to do that. So it was, it was fun. It was a great week. Um, but I miss you guys. I'm glad to be back. I really do miss you guys. I'm gone. I feel like I have not been here at all. So, uh, you know, just anyway. This morning, um, we're going to start a new teaching series. And there are, there's really kind of two basic approaches to teaching on Sundays. Uh, one is a topical. You can teach topically like we did recently. We had a series on worship and Earlier in the year, we had a series on gifts, so there's just sort of a, a topical approach. And then there's a, what's called an expository approach, which is where you go straight through the book. And we do both here. We go back and forth. Our, our next this series we're going to start now is going to be uh, expositorily topical or topically expository. I'm not sure which. One of those. We are going to begin today uh, a series in the book of Luke. And we're going to go straight through the book of Luke. Chapter by chapter, passage by passage, I don't know if we'll touch every verse, we'll touch most of them. And the reason I say it will be expositorily topical is because within the Gospel of Luke, we will touch on virtually everything related to Christian life. At different points, we'll talk about worship and prayer, we'll talk about deliverance and healing, we'll talk about the kingdom of God, we'll talk about com community and church life. There's just there's so, so many topics that will be covered uh, in this series, and so I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I think it will be a lot of fun for us. You might be saying, uh, that's going to be a long series, and if you're saying that, you'd be correct. Uh, Luke is 24 chapters long. And we will not do a chapter a week. Some chapters will take us three, four, maybe five weeks. So we could be here for a while. So I would just say enjoy the ride. I would encourage you all to, to read and, and study with me as we go. Uh, just spend some time in addition to whatever normal sort of reading plan or process you have to, to add maybe reading a, a chapter or two of the Gospel of Luke and sort of thinking about that. Luke writes uh, the first four verses of his gospel are sort of his introduction to the book, why he's writing, and we will look at those this morning as our introduction to the book. But first, let us pray. Uh, so, Lord, we thank you so much for your word. And just pray you would uh, open our hearts to receive from you and all that you have for us. Uh, help us to really grow in, in depth of understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Your name we pray. Amen. All right, so uh, Luke 1, 1 through 4. 
Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. He mentions here that there are other accounts written, and we don't know specifically what he's referring to. It could very well be the other gospel accounts that we have in our Bible, but there were other documents written at that time as well, uh, sort of you know, chronicling what was happening in and through the life and ministry of Jesus. And so Luke could be referring to either or both of those. But for whatever reason, in the midst of these other writings, he decides that he wants to add his voice to that. And he says, I have carefully investigated. So Luke has done research. He's talked to people. He's interviewed eyewitnesses. Um, Luke is not mentioned in any of the gospel accounts. So we don't know uh, at what point he determined to become a follower of Jesus exactly. He was clearly alive and around at that time and, and had some knowledge of who Jesus was. But his first real appearance is somewhere in the book of Acts, uh, which he also authors, but he refers to himself first person, we went and did this, or we did that in Acts, and Paul references Luke a number of times in his writings. So he was part of that first generation of believers, but we don't know exactly when he chose to start following Jesus. But he sets out, he says, I'm going to write an orderly account, and the, the, the Greek word orderly account uh, literally means narration. It's a, it's a narrative, it's a story. He's going to write the story of what happened through Jesus uh, as it's told to him by eyewitnesses. And so he's recreating this, um, this document of what happened, reconstructing that through eyewitness accounts, much as we would do today in, uh, you know, the, a court of law. So when there's a crime committed or if there's an accident or whatever, the police will go and they'll interview different people and they'll say, well, I saw this and this is what it looked like to me. And somebody else might say, well, no, I think it happened this way. So that's what Luke has done. He's gone and he's interviewed people. He's compiled these things together. And now he's, he's writing this account uh, to his friend Theophilus. So first of all, who was Luke? Well, uh, he, was a, he was a medical doctor, a physician. We know that from Paul's writing. It, it, you know, you just assume, I assume, I don't know about you, when somebody's a doctor that they're pretty smart, right? I like my doctors to be smart. Um, you assume Luke, Luke is a pretty smart guy just because he's a doctor. But when you read his book, you, you, you really do know he's a smart guy. His writing style, his vocabulary, he's clearly very, very well educated. And, and here's something I want to... This is kind of my point uh, in all of this. And this is what I want us to grasp as we go through the Gospel of Luke. That the Gospel, the historical kind of G- account of Jesus, is not a mindless sort of reality. And at different points in my life growing up, and some of you that are a little bit older will remember um, kind of... There was the, the, kind of this ongoing debate between faith and science, and Christianity and science were sort of at odds with one another. And the underlying sort of thing there was to be a follower of Jesus, 
you, you had to be kind of foolish. Because clearly, science tells us one thing about life, and the gospel tells us another thing. So science is proven by facts. It's true. So this must be just sort of a mindless kind of thing. You have to be not that bright to be a follower of Jesus. Well, what I would say is nothing could be further from the truth. So the title of our series, if you want to kind of keep it in mind as we go through the Gospel of Luke, is Don't Check Your Brain at the Door. Luke was a thinking person, and his audience was a thinking person. He's, he's writing to Theophilus, which, just by the way, is like the coolest name ever. Is it not, Theophilus? So if any of you are thinking about having kids in the near future, just keep that in mind, man. That is a great name, Theophilus. He's the most excellent Theophilus. And that means that uh, it's a formal kind of title. He was someone of education, someone of importance. We don't know anything about him. He's a mystery. But Luke is an intelligent guy, and he's writing to an intelligent person. So don't check your brain at the door. You don't have to be mindless to be a follower of Jesus. I, I believe personally that Luke and Paul were two of the greatest thinkers ever in the history of the world. Uh, and that it, I think it's important for us to give consideration to that as we follow Jesus. We want to know uh, as we read scripture, why is it written? What was the purpose? And Luke tells us his purpose in this text he says, so you might know the certainty of the things you've been taught. First Peter tells us that we're always to be prepared to give an answer for the faith that we have. And um, if you're not going to check your brain at the door, I, I think you should be able to give an intelligent response as to why you follow Jesus. You know, again, I think growing up, at times people would say, well, you just got to have faith, man. You just got to believe. And there, 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 is, there is some truth in that. You do have to just have faith and you do have to just believe. But again, with that was sort of the underlying idea that any, any, anything deeper than that was almost viewed as a lack of faith. You don't really have faith if you need more proof. And, and I would say this, we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. And, and I don't think that it's necessarily incongruous for us to think about what it means to follow Jesus. Faith and reason, to me, are not mutually exclusive. I believe you can have... A, in fact, I, I would say this. I would almost define faith as a reasonable certainty. A reasonable certainty that what I believe is true. I have a reasonable certainty that what I believe about who Jesus is and what he means is true. In that light, we exercise faith every day. Um, I was uh, in Colorado Springs last week, and to get there, I had to fly in an airplane. And I had faith that that airplane would get me to my destination safely and that it would not crash. Airplanes crash. There could be bad weather. There could be some sort of mechanical failure. Maybe someone forgot to tighten something or adjust something that they were supposed to do. Or we've heard 
reports in the news at different times about pilots getting on the plane drunk. You know, that could happen. Or terrorists could overtake the plane. There's reasons that planes crash. But if you just take a look at how many airplanes fly every day and the percentage of those that crash, the chances are pretty slim. So I had faith. I had a reasonable certainty that that plane would get me to my destination. And that, that sort of concept is true, really, in, in, all across life. I mean, we get married, and when you get married, you have a reasonable certainty that this person you're marrying is the person for you, that you're going to have a lifelong relationship. You have faith that it's going to work. Every now and then, I'll have somebody who will... Uh, they meet maybe online or, or in, in some other context, but then they, they want to get married right away. They come in, will you marry us? And I, I'm like, why don't you take a little time? Why don't you get to know each other a little bit first? Why don't you spend some time dating and, 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 and get engaged and go through some counseling and, and, and develop a, a deeper understanding of who you both are so that you might have more of a reasonable certainty that this really is the right decision for you rather than rush into it. You see, we, we all have faith. We all believe in something. So it's not a matter of do we believe or do we have faith. The question is what we believe in. Um, there, there are consequences to what you believe or don't believe. There's consequences to what you believe in. And in terms of the gospel, when we're talking about believing in Jesus, the consequences are eternal. So the consequences of every decision are greater or lesser based on that decision. You know what I'm saying? Some, some things aren't that big of a deal. If I go home this afternoon, I read the newspaper, and I see a recipe, and I go, man, that looks good. I'm going to make that for dinner tonight. And I cook that dinner, and it's not good. The consequences are we had a bad dinner. Get over it. There's always tomorrow. Other decisions in life, who you marry, what career path you pursue, where you live, the consequences are greater. Those might be lifelong consequences. The gospel, I'm going to follow Jesus, that decision has eternal consequences. When I accepted Christ, it was really more of a cognitive and irrational decision than an emotional decision. And I know that we all come to Christ in different ways, and for some people it's very emotional. For me it was very rational. I was 14 years old. I was attending a youth group of a denominational church in California. And we went to a movie. In the 70s there was a series of movies, some of you will remember, came out called The Thief in the Night, Distant Thunder... And these were evangelistic movies, and the, the irony of the whole situation is that they were evangelistic movies based on a doctrine that isn't actually accurate. But, nonetheless. So, so we go to the movie, and to, I'll be honest, I, I remember nothing about it. The movie had zero impact on my life. What impacted me, and what I do remember, was this, because at the end of the movie... Guy walks up to the front in front of the screen and starts talking. And that, I noticed, that got my attention because that doesn't happen, right? 
Dude walks up in the middle of the theater and starts talking. And I'm going, why is dude up in the front of the theater talking? That's weird. But he's giving a gospel presentation. He's talking about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And I'm listening to him. And I say to myself, self, that makes sense. In fact, I believe everything he's saying is true. I, I, I do. I believe everything this man is saying is true. But I don't know that I've ever done what he's saying I need to do. And so it was a very rational decision. At the end, he said, so if you want to accept Jesus, get up and come forward. Well, I thought, yeah, I better do that. It, was, it wasn't in the realm of emotions at all. It was really just uh, this idea that that's real, that's true. It makes sense to me, so I'm going to go do it. And I want to say this, you know, after 45, 46 years of following Jesus, through the course of my life, there have been any number of things that have compelled me to continue on this path. But the one thing that I keep coming back to is that it just makes sense. This, this path of life makes the most sense. When I evaluate what it would look like to be an atheist or an agnostic or to follow some other religious tradition, I just go, this makes the most sense to me. Um, I want to have a little fun. Oh, we got all kinds of time. Just for a minute, if the story that Luke tells, if this narrative is not true, it was either true or not true, we have a certainty of things that believe it was not true, and that's, that's, really the, that's really the task that we are left with, really. Is this a true story? You watch a movie, you know, you read a book, you know, sometimes we watch a movie and my wife will go, is that a true story? Because it's compelling. And I find very often true stories are more compelling than non-true stories. If it's false, if it's not true, there's really only two options. There's two ways it could be false. It's either intentionally false, which means it was a conspiracy, or it's unintentionally false, which means it was a legend. So if it was a conspiracy, that means that the disciples and other followers of Jesus, they got together and intentionally decided to put forth this story uh, and get others to believe it. It was a conspiracy. They conspired together to do that. And we have conspiracy theories today, don't we? I mean, I'm telling you, it's a, it's a whole crazy world out there. Just Google conspiracy theory. Now, maybe don't Google conspiracy theory, but if you do, uh, there's, so there's all these, you know, the CIA and LBJ had Kennedy assassinated. That's, that's one that's been going on for, for years and years. More recently, I suppose, you know, George Bush and Dick Cheney were responsible for 9-11. That's a conspiracy that's out there. And then, of course, there's the Illuminati. I don't know who the Illuminati are or what they do, but they run everything. Um, a conspiracy is an intentional deception. Somebody means to deceive you. Um, so there are any number of reasons to me why, in, in consideration of the gospel, that doesn't add up. But I'm going to tell you the one I think is the most compelling. And that is, uh, what did they have to gain? What would the possible motivation for telling this story be if it wasn't true? See, typically, the reason somebody develops a conspiracy is to gain control. They want to either get money or power. So, for example, you know, 
Cheney and Bush were behind 9-11 because Cheney worked for Halliburton and Halliburton wanted a big contract and you have a big contract for a company like Halliburton, you have to have a war, so let's start a war. That's, that's the conspiracy. So what possibly did the disciples and those early followers of Jesus have to gain by telling this story? The truth is they had nothing to gain but everything to lose. So by telling this story, we're probably going to die. And, you know, you would think if that were the case, that somewhere down the line, after seven or eight or nine or ten people were killed for their faith, somebody would have said, whoa, time out. No, just kidding. We made it up. It's not true. We made it up, but nobody ever said that. Every single one of the disciples and many early followers of Jesus went to their death clinging to what they believed to be true about who Jesus was and what he did in the world. The other option is that it's unintentional. That it, that it, uh, they believed it, but it wasn't true. It was a legend. And you know how legends work, right? It's, it's something happens, something really does happen, but over time it just gets bigger. So there's the guy in high school, the home run hitter, who hit 20 home runs his senior year. But by the time you get to your 10-year reunion, it wasn't 20 home runs, it was 35 home runs, and there was that one that broke the car window in the Walmart parking lot a block away. Remember that? The story grows and grows and grows. It's a legend. And so the only way this would have happened is that if, in fact, Jesus did do some stuff, but not the stuff that it says he did, but over time it, 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 it just sort of grew and grew and grew and grew and grew. The, the problem with that, in my mind, and again, I think there are a number of issues that would indicate to me that uh, this wasn't a legend. One, one issue is, is simply this, that it happened so quickly. You know, the Gospels were written within 20 or 30 years of, uh, of Jesus' life. There, there's no way this legend could have grown that much in, in that period of time. But beyond that, there were so many people who witnessed this and who were touched by the life of Jesus outside of that group of people. There were, you know, there were people that were maybe not followers of Jesus per se, who witnessed this and who saw what happened. Uh, one of those, there's a historian named Josephus, and I want to read to you what Josephus said about Jesus. He's just a, he's just a Jewish historian and in, in chronicled Jewish history during that period of time. And he says this, About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. For he was one who performed surprising deeds and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Christ. And when upon the accusation of the principal men among us, Pilate had condemned him to a cross, those who had first come to love him did not cease. After Pilate condemned him to cross... Those who came to love him did not cease. He appeared to them, spending a third day restored to life for the prophets of God, had foretold these things and a thousand other marvels about him. And the tribe of the Christians, so called after him, has still to this day not disappeared. 94 AD, and still to this day they've not disappeared either, have they? So many other people were touched by the life and ministry and works of Jesus as well. Um, 
So that, that was just kind of for fun, what it would be like to, you know, say that the gospel is not true. Um, but over the next, I don't know, couple years, we're going to go through the book of Luke and we will endeavor to uh, deepen our understanding and uh, grow in the certainty of those things that we have been taught to know more about what it really means to be a follower of Jesus. So why don't you guys stand and Stephen Mercy, you guys want to come back up?